This is about the interpersonal relationships, building relationships of trust, creating psychological safety. I think that as leaders, we can help leaders develop them, their emotional intelligence skills, then they're going to be much more successful as leaders. This is Transit Unplugged. I'm Paul Comfort. Good to be with you on another edition of the world's leading transit executive podcast, Transit Unplugged. News and views this week with a chock-packed program with useful information that you need to know. We're going to kick it off with our news segment. Across America, there's been a lot of concern about recent bank uh, closures. And we thought, you know, that uh, has some potential impact on the public transit industry. So our first guest is David Leininger. David is the former chief financial officer of the Dallas Dart Transit System. He's been interim CEO there as well as another system. And he is founder and principal advisor for Leininger Analytics, one of the smartest guys I know. He headed up uh, the National Transportation CFOs Association for five years. I couldn't think of anybody better to have on to address that. And that's a good in-depth discussion. We'll start off first. Then our Newsmaker interview is with Kurt Conrad. Kurt is CEO of Stark Transit in Ohio and is big on hydrogen. He works with the Zero Emission Bus Center of Excellence there. And he's going to talk to you today exactly about Hydrogen Fuel Works. Uh, it's, a, it's going to be a great interview you'll enjoy. And he also is going to be a guest at our Think Transit Executive Summit in uh, Nashville in a, in a week or two, where he'll be talking on the same topic as well. And then we're excited to continue our leadership development segment of the podcast, serving the transit industry with great leaders talking about how to grow your own leadership development skills. Today, we've got Sherry Burgess on from Utah Transit Authority. She's a leadership development training specialist who has developed a program they're using there on emotional intelligence. Uh, I think you're really going to enjoy that portion of the podcast. So three big segments of our podcast today. It is great information for you in all 130 countries we're heard on around the world. First up, hot off the presses, so to speak, is uh, what's happening across not only the public transit industry, but across America. And that is recent bank failures. We wanted to address that on our news segment today for the podcast. And I couldn't think of anybody better to bring on the podcast to talk about the impact of bank closures on the transit industry than my good friend and our industry leader, David Leininger. David, thank you so much for being our guest today. I'm happy to be here, Paul. Thank you. So this is a hot breaking topic. As you know, there's been a lot of buzz over the last few weeks about recent bank closures, including Silicon Valley Bank in California and Signature Bank in New York. It's making people nervous. I mean, every time I get with people, that's like the hot topic du jour. I was at the legislative conference last week. There was a lot of buzz about that in Washington, D.C. Um, having been, uh, you've been the chief financial officer of a big city, of the Dallas area transit system. You've been their interim CEO. Uh, you were chairman of the big CF Transit CFOs Association for five years. And now you're founder and principal advisor of your own company, Leininger Analytics. Um, you've got a lot of great background in this. I mean, what should we be doing right now in light of this news? Well, let me uh, start with a couple of context. Uh, you know, the, at the heart of this particular problem, the banking industry is something called uh, duration risk and interest. And well, that's pretty wonky. And, uh, and I don't think that's the way that uh, actually a CFO should start in when they, in what their next step should be, which is to think through. What are they going to tell their CEO and also the board relative to the exact question you raise? So that I always think about, okay, the obvious question that your boss and the board's going to raise is, 
what is this? What about this? And are we okay? And if we, if you say we are okay, why are you saying we are okay? Uh, and so that's, that's really first and foremost is to think about answering that question and doing the homework, uh, to make sure that you really do have a basis for saying that. So that's number one. And if I were advising a CFO today, I would say, sit down and write through a one page memo that talks through the three or four points, uh, that either that can provide assurance that, uh, you know what this is, you know, how it affects you and you know why it's not going to be a problem. Uh, no. You know, I, the obvious caveat is, unless it is a problem for you. So, uh, you have to break that now into the next piece, which is, this is very much a function of the size of your agency, what your, uh, real, what your relationship to investment, uh, advisors are, uh, what, what the strength of your treasury staff is inside your organization. And also how you're governed by state law, because the state laws are quite different across the country and what the obligations are of the custodians of the public trust. Uh, so you need to know your circumstances. Uh, and it is going to be, I think, more of a problem for mid and small size agencies in terms of dealing with uh, some of these risks because it's more likely than not that they're working with uh, regional banks and community banks. Uh, as opposed to the very large agencies who just because of size, uh, are going to be dealing with the, uh, uh, the, the money market lenders, the, the, you know, the big four or big five, so to speak. One of the things that's come to light is, um, you know, the FDIC insuring bank deposits of up to $250,000. That became a big issue, especially on the, uh, discussions of SVB there in California as a bulk of their, um, folks who had money in the bank had more than that in the bank. And so transit agencies, of course, are dealing with millions of dollars in federal funds, et cetera. How normally are, how are those funds handled by, you know, transit agencies? Talk us through that some. Well, the, yeah, first of all, the problem that depositors encountered over the last week or two uh, have been uh, in the area of unsecured deposits, meaning that portion that's over the 250 uh, that effectively uh, uh, are non-collateralized, uh, and therefore you're depending solely on the ability of the bank to actually pay you when you ask for your money. Lesson number one of treasurers is that keep uh, very little money in the bank uh, uh, on an overnight basis, uh, and uh, and your deposits should be uh, collateralized to 102 percent, so that you really don't have nearly the kind of uh, risk and exposure that the private sector does. Now, most of the money uh, that's large in amount, and that would be proceeds from a bond sale, uh, a large grant uh, a, you know, receipt uh, of a variety of kinds, you're not going to sit that in a bank uh, with overnight funds. You're going to move that quickly into either um, a laddered set of treasuries and agencies uh, all of which are the highest credit rate and what you owe. The only function of the bank or the institution you're dealing with is as custodian of your assets. That's different from an unsecured uh, deposit. Uh, so what you're doing is sweeping those kinds of funds quickly through and out and then putting them into statewide money pools, uh, into an actual series of investments that your, uh, your broker dealer and your investment analysts are advising you on. Uh, and then, then you're managing uh, duration risk very carefully. Uh, you've got obligations coming due 
and you've got to be make, make sure that you've got uh, those things coming back in uh, and being turned into liquid assets so you can pay your bills. Where the risk comes in right now, actually, oddly enough, is with payroll. And, and it's for smaller groups, in particular, working with regional banks. Uh, it's, it's not unusual to have a payroll uh, provider uh, that is actually uh, doing the process of uh, preparing the, the, the check, the paychecks, and then, and then pushing them out to the various banks where your employees actually have their money. Uh, and there's a step some uh, uh, agencies work through that are typically smaller where they're actually, they fund a dollar amount to a payroll uh, operator uh, who is the intermediary who in turn then cuts the checks um, uh, to the various banks. They are holding their money in a bank. Uh, it's, a, it's literally inside of a few hours sometimes. So that's actually what got a bunch of people in trouble with uh, Silicon Valley Bank is that the payroll providers, who were the intermediary between the agency and, and the recipients of the checks, had their money into a bank in an unsecured way, which is to me a little incredible. So the, the, what I would be focused on if, you know, if I didn't have an advisor, um, uh, and, uh, my bank wasn't, was being a little closed whipped about what was going on. First and foremost, I'd take a look at my payroll processing steps and if I had a payroll provisor, an ADP or somebody like that, that's in an intermediate uh, posture, I'd want to know a lot about their bank. Uh, that they're using uh, on that overnight uh, you know, funds transmission. That's number one. Now, on your other bills, which are basically your AP uh, stack and what you're doing there, uh, very often you're paying out you know, uh, weekly or, or biweekly. So there, uh, you've got a little more latitude in terms of how you pay because most people, while they have a 30-day obligation for a quick profit that's very common across the industry I mean, your ap cycles typically have a have a peak and a valley cycle to them so there are some big numbers that come out usually big contract uh, uh deals like with bus companies that they might be you know something like that and then you have the routine stuff that comes through and it's hundreds of different kinds of vendors but relatively small any good treasury shop uh, and cfo is going to know what their payment cycle looks like and what their minimums and maximums look like inside of a 12-month period. Um, and they shouldn't have cash uh, at risk that's going to be, they're going to be drawing on to uh, you know, fund into that. You need to know where your cash is, uh, you know, is going to go out. You need to particularly focus on payroll because that's one area where you may have an exposure you didn't anticipate. And uh, you, you need to have a careful understanding of the timing of receipts, whether that's coming from, you know, taxes or, or grants or whatever. And if I receive, oh, again, uh, I would, the, after that, writing that memo saying, you know, the, I, I, here's why, I, here's the question to ask. Here's why I think we're okay. But here's my next step that I'm going to make as CFO. I've got a call in a meeting set up with my investment advisors, and we're going to go through all of our uh, process for payments and deposits and make sure that there's not something in there that, that, that would be a surprise. I would start with payroll. That's excellent. Very good detailed analysis, David. Uh, last question is more of a broader kind of forward looking question. So it's asking for a little prognosticating on your part. And that would be, you know, 
were these isolated cases? I just saw that a few more banks were put on a watch list. Or should we be worried or concerned about more bank failures going forward? I think it's, it's, it's absolutely certain that there will be some more failures uh, and reconstruction, restructuring of banks coming out of this. Another bank or two that we're going to find out uh, was asleep at the switch. Uh, again, I really don't understand how that could be. And I would say that you've got, you've got some risk managers and some CEOs uh, that really did a, pa- a bad job in, the, in their bank of, of managing interest rate risk. And that's one area where that's supposed to be you know, rule number one. So I, I, but it's inevitable. There's got to be some more. Well, it, and so that leads to kind of what you just said in the 10 minutes before that was check where, check in your bank, check, check your processes of payment, check your payment processors bank, make sure you're on top of all that if you're in a transit agency. David, thank you so much for being our guest on this uh, hot news-breaking issue. We'll put a link to your website on our show notes if people want to contact you and get more information. Thanks again. You bet. It's nice talking to you, and thank you for all the good work you do, Paul. Thank you, David. This week, we're with Kurt Conrad, who is CEO of SARTA, the Stark Area Regional Transit Authority in Ohio. Kurt, thanks so much for being with us. No, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to diving in today to alternative fuels, which you guys have been a real leader on. But before we do that, let's uh, just give us a little context. Tell us a little about your agency, where you're at, what you do, and yourself a little bit, please. So we serve Star County, which is in Canton, Ohio, where the Football Hall of Fame is. We serve uh, actually two counties in Ohio, Wayne County and and, in Star County, about 1,000 square miles. Um, We provide fixed routes to Akron and Cleveland. throughout the week. Uh, we transport about 2.7 million passengers a year. We do, do both fixed route and uh, paratransit in those counties. About how many buses do you run? Uh, about 110. And employee count? About 240. We actually have more employees now than we did pre-pandemic. You've been a leader in compressed natural gas, CNG fuel, for quite a while. Yep. Let's talk about that, and then we'll delve into hydrogen. Tell me about what you all have been doing with CNG and how that works. So yeah, I the prior property I came from, I used to work at Akron, was as CNG all the way back to 1994. So I've been very familiar with 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 CNG and a gaseous product. Um, we actually started doing um, natural gas buses in like I believe it was 2012. Um, we started with our first uh, natural gas buses. Uh, right now, about about 70 uh, percent of our fleet is natural gas, compressed natural gas. Uh, the nice thing about that is it, you don't have to do the whole, you know, um, regen and reburn that stuff. You have to do with diesel, uh, with the CNG. It's a, you know, it's it's a clear fuel uh, by a, a long shot. You don't have the particulate matter or the um, NOx and uh, socks, so to speak, with using uh, CNG. The other thing too, it's about a third of the cost of diesel. Uh, we've seen diesel prices are fr- fluctuating all over the place in the last year or so. Um, so. It's better for both an environmental and an economic perspective using a um, um, CNG. Tell us about the difference between, um, uh, you know, is CNG like zero emission or is it low emission or how, how is it described? Yes, yeah, it's, it's low emission. It's not zero emission because anytime you burn anything, you're still going to have some particulate matter and, and that stuff. Is there a percentage of the, how cleaner it is versus clean diesel or anything like that? That's a 
Yeah, it's probably, and I, this is just off the top of my head, probably yeah. 30 40% cleaner than diesel. We look at the, um, the, the CNG versus diesel molecule. Uh, there's like 18 carbon uh, atoms in a, in a molecule of, of diesel, whereas there's only like four in a molecule of, of natural gas. So even from that perspective, there's just a lot less byproduct that's going to ha- happen because of that, that, that burning process. Yeah. So I've, I've talked to people in places like Fort Worth and other places in Canada that, that have a lot of compressed natural gas locally, right? So it's easy for them to access. And that seems to be uh, a guiding factor in the folks I've talked to. Do you have like, is that why you all got into CNG because you have all the shale and stuff close to you or how does that work? Um, well, we have a lot of natural gas here locally. That's for yes. sure. Okay. And we've historically have had it, you know, we're actually in the third, um, oil boom in this part of the country. So it's always been locally and sourcing. It's never re- really been a problem. The availability of it is, is one thing that makes it easy I for us. So, yeah. it's natural gas, you know, everywhere and give you a bucket of it and you can carry it around with you if you want to. Um, so <laughs> so how did you get into hydrogen fueling? That's something that uh, you've gotten into lately, right? Yeah. I started down this path, I guess, in, in 2005 where uh, there was a the gentleman that came to town locally to speak. His name was Stan Oshinsky. Uh, he was named like scientist of the, of the century by science magazine. And he came up with this concept called the hydrogen circle, the renewable energy circle, where you could take, you know, photovoltaics, make electricity, use an electrolyzer, split in, make, make hydrogen, and then use that hydrogen on fuel cell propel something. And then the byproduct being water. And I saw that it was kind of like an epiphany happened. Like, why are we doing this? And so yeah. I think, so we've been going down this path of using, uh, trying to use hydrogen or renewable hydrogen and vehicle transportation. Um, and then when I came here to start to continue down that line towards getting hydrogen and, and now we've got the third largest fleet in the country. How does that work? I, you and I were talking beforehand in the green room and I, I actually got to see one of your vehicles about mm-hmm. two years ago, I believe at the Transportation Association of Maryland TAM conference. Right. It's my first exposure to seeing it up close in person. How does hydrogen fuel work? I mean, people always freak out about, you know, the Hindenburg, which is a hundred years ago, obviously technology is a lot different than that. How does it work in a vehicle? So the energy is, cre- electricity is created through a, a chemical process, not a burning process. And so what happens is uh, there's a fuel cell stack where you've got almost, you know, probably close to 10,000 insulators in a, uh, in an active plate. And all those are put together into a stack. Okay. Uh, there's, there's a, uh, an, um, anode and cathode, like a battery. Um, and so what happens is, Hydrogen comes into one side of the fuel cell, oxygen with the other side. Um, those two then interact and hit the active plate, which uh, um, then causes an electron to be released. And then the byproduct of that trans- that that process is water, which is then literally just either evaporates as vapor or it's, it's the water that's released literally on the street. The water is so clean, you can actually drink it. Wow. And an unavailing in Columbus where we had some people from from FTA and all that stuff there. And they, they literally drank the water. That's, so that's what it is. It's, it's hydrogen and oxygen, you said, and they come oxygen. together and they, yes. they have some kind of chemical process and then that creates energy. Yep. So what happens is the hydrogen and oxygen combined release an electron and that electron is literally is ejected. And then from, from there, it goes to an inverter and then a distribution box. And, and from, from at that point, it's just, it's literally electricity. Most of the bus manufacturers use the same bus platform for the battery electric and a fuel cell. So it's the same thing 
Okay. Under, from, from the fuel cell source. The only difference is that the energy is stored in hydrogen. So you really think about hydrogen as an energy storage mechanism, just like gasoline is. And so the energy is stored there um, until you need it. Uh, is it gaseous? Is hydrogen, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, mm -hmm. so, so you have, you're storing like a tube of, of gas on your vehicle. How do you get that gas in there? Uh, if you're familiar, we, we talked about CNG before, basically all the gaseous fuels, fuel the same way. You literally okay. pull up, pump, um, and, and you, you hook on, a, um, the nozzle, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, and from there you, you just fill. Now you okay. keep the filling, um, times down. I know that AC, uh, transit and, and. Orange County is getting a, a diesel fuel down to about six to 10 minutes. So it's, it's very comparable to the fill time of a diesel vehicle would be. And then you're out on the road again. Uh, there is a battery pack that's on board this. And the, the reason for the battery pack is the fuel cell generates electricity at a steady output. The fuel cell bus does use regenerative braking. So when it slows down, it charges the batteries. Um, also, if you need uh, to accelerate to move around traffic, you, you pull up that, that initial spike of energy demand from, from the battery pack. And why did you choose, speaking of the electric, why did you choose hydrogen over like traditional electric or have you chosen them? Or do you do electric as well on your fleet? We only use the fuel cell. Um, okay. the, re the reason why is one range. Um, we're, we're looking at uh, the, the newest version of buses are getting over 300 miles on a single fill, which 90% of the transit routes in the country are 300 miles or less. Actually, most of them are probably closer to 200. 70, but a fuel cell bus can stay out all day and, and run a, it. Basically, it is a drop-in replacement for, for, for a diesel bus. Whereas, you know, battery electrics, most of them are getting about 150 miles on a charge. Um, and there's only so much, it's at some point, uh, you're trading off batteries for passengers, which seems to be kind of, uh, working against yourself. Um, the other thing too, is I don't really like my equipment to di dictate my service. Whereas a battery electric bus, you kind of have to look Look at how you're doing opportunity charging and all that stuff. Uh, so I just felt that the the fuel cell bus give, gives us a better uh, drop-in replacement uh, than a battery bus. Um, the other thing too is um, in the cold weather, which we do have here in Ohio, um, batteries don't discharge uh, power as efficiently um, when it gets cold. Uh, and so, and we've actually done done direct reviews of the energy loss during cold on a battery bus versus hydrogen. Um, and, a, and you're going to see about a 50% more loss in power of a battery bus versus a fuel cell. The fuel cell, the, one, the reason you don't see that degradation, as soon as you produce the electricity, it's consumed. So there isn't really that, that, that issue of, of, of a battery degradation. What's the downsides, would you say, versus, you know, diesel or, or electric of hydrogen? Are there any downsides? Uh, well, the downside to hydrogen, well, let's back up. The thing about diesel, it's easy. Uh, you want to measure how much you got in the tank. You put a stick in it uh, and see where how wet it is. It, it's easy to transport. Um, it's a it's a mature technology. So and if you want to part, you just go down to AutoZone to get it. Right. Whereas either battery buses or electric, it's a newer technology. With configurations are new, um, you can't go down to AutoZone to get any mm -hmm. replacement parts. And kind of a, a story about that is we actually try to use a cheaper filter, air filter, uh, than was what was spec. And what was happening, it was pulling in dirt into the fuel cell and mm. caused the whole system to shut down. So these systems are somewhat more complicated um, than a diesel bus. And so just that complexity um, causes some problems. 
Um, but once they're running, they're fine. It's just sometimes the complexity of the interaction of the systems um, can cause issues. Okay. Is that why you are part of this Midwest Hydrogen Center of Excellence to kind of train your employees or tell me about that? So that does two things. We, we were a couple of different things. Um, we, we do training, we do outreach. Um, uh, we've actually done training with, uh, high school, middle school kids with the local, uh, community colleges. Uh, then we also just, we do other research. Uh, like I said, we've done some research of the efficiency of battery electric buses versus fuel cells. Um, we've also done, um, on-site demonstrations with Iowa State University. Uh, so we do basically it's the three things that it's, it's training of, of a staff outreach to, um, to the community and then uh, general research and trying to move forward with, uh, with hydrogen and, and, and renewable hydrogen. Uh, we are involved in one of the hydrogen hubs um, uh, with Battelle in the state of West Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and trying to move that forward to, to trying to get the hydrogen down to a dollar per kilogram. Um, and that's the DOE's, what they call uh, Earthshot, where they're spending $50 billion to try to get um, trying to get that price down. I think also just generally it's come, I think a general consensus that battery electric um, is good for short range delivery, passenger cars, and and, and probably shorter range transit applications. Longer range vehicles or vehicles that have a longer duty cycle, it seems like hydrogen is a better application there. I think if you look at the heavy duty sector and that stuff, what's going to benefit transit is that the heavy duty sector is moving forward and this DOE stuff is moving forward independently of what we're doing in transit. So I'm sure you're familiar with Lauren Skyver, who runs the West Coast Center of Excellence yeah. uh, for hydrogen out there. And she actually sells hydrogen, you know, onto the market. I actually toured her hydrogen plant just before the pandemic. Um, APTA BMBG was out there and we drove up and yeah. toured it. Pretty interesting. So that's, that's a thing you got to do though, right? So if you go to hydrogen for somebody who's thinking about, you know, hey, this is interesting, you know, Kurt has some interesting things to say, you'd have to actually build probably your own fueling plant, right? You, not necessarily. We actually get ours delivered. I think the whole goal of electric vehicles and any of this stuff is to reduce our CO2 output, is right. reduce our, our, our carbon uh, output. But either battery electric or hydrogen is only going to be as clean as the input energy that is used to power them. So in some ways, we as an industry, um, you know, need to push back on our providers to make sure we're getting as green as energy as possible. With, with hydrogen, most of it is made using natural gas to produce it. Um, and so they're looking at carbon capture and these various things. They're also looking at, at ways that you can generate electricity um, or using electricity from solar and that kind of stuff. Um, but so you can either produce it on site with a process called uh, steam methane reformation, SMR, electrolysis, you can produce on site, or you can get it delivered either a gaseous or, or a liquid form. And so we actually get it deli delivered here and I have a 9,000 gallon liquid tank that stores 2,400 kilograms of hydrogen on site in, in a liquid form. And liquid is probably the cheapest and easiest way to do it um, because you're just having somebody fill up, you know, like we do diesel now, they come over the truck yeah. and put it in a tank. Okay. It's the same thing here. Here, uh, Whereas what Lauren is doing and actually is producing on site right. um, is a little bit more complicated just because you got more machinery to deal with. And so we're seeing people like Plug Power, they're producing like 10,000 tons of hydrogen in a day 
and, and these new green plants you're building. So the industry has started to respond more and more on producing green liquid hydrogen that you can have delivered versus you have to invest, um, you know, yeah. a lot of money. A couple million bucks on, in a plant, yeah. On, on site production. What about the cost of the vehicles? How do they compare? So right now, they're still at a premium. You're probably looking at uh, anywhere from 900,000 to 1.1 million okay. vehicle. Um, I mean, a battery electric is going to be about 800,000 or 850 to 900,000, depending on what, what you get into it. Your diesel bus is still going to be about six to seven. 600, 000. right. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it is a premium. Are they standard 12-year life cycle? Yeah, or? they're standard 12 years. The interesting thing is a fuel, either a battery electric bus or fuel cell bus. Um, has about half the parts that a diesel bus has. There's like 10,000 parts in a diesel bus. And there's like 6,000 in a fuel cell bus. So from that perspective, there's actually less to maintain. The interesting thing is the tire wear is a little bit different because it's electric vehicle. And so sometimes you're grabbing, you uh, yeah. grab more because um, you have instant torque. We've seen that. Every once in a while, we see these little goofy things like that. Um, a quick story. So we start up our, our, our hydrogen station the first time. And it started making all these bang noises and all that other stuff. And it was a hot day. It was like 90 degrees outside with about 500% humidity. And all of a sudden we just start, people said, thought that the, the station was on fire because there was just all this smoke around it, but it wasn't smoke. It was, it was mist. And it was like as high as the building. And it was just, it looked like I was coming out of the jungle or something or so much mist and see what happens is when the, when the um, hydrogen is, is, in liquid form, it's at minus 423 degrees. And so when you make it into, into a gas, it literally, you know, you have to warm it up. So it just literally sucking all the heat around it. And you could feel about a 30 degree difference. And so I told her what we need to do is uh, make a book. It's called What to Expect When You're Expecting. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like this entire thing. <laughs> what you do with alternative energies and that right. so Sometimes you know what the, what the bells and whistles and bangs are, what she should be afraid of and not afraid of. And that Absolutely. was one of the things we, we learned early on was uh, sometimes you have to find out what, it, what are the noises you need to be afraid of. Yeah. Well, that's my last question for you. You've been like, uh, because you're a pioneer in this fuel, I mean, people from all over the world have been contacting you, right? Uh, and I know you've sent your vehicle out to like a hundred places, people from New Zealand, everywhere coming to visit New York. How, where can people find out more information? Well, then go to our website. Um, another thing is, 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 Actually, NREL, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, has about 15 years worth of evaluation of our fleet, AC Transit fleet in Oakland. Um, they, they did the uh, Whistler buses. Yeah. Uh, so th I, if I was going to start somewhere, I'd start at NREL. I would start at CalSTRT also has a lot of information. Uh, there's another organization uh, that's, that's called Zebra, uh, which is Zero Emissions bus resource association. So I, I would start there. Um, the center for transportation, and the environment is also another good source of, uh, of information. They've done a lot of fleet planning along with CalSTART uh, across the country on, on transitioning to, to zero emissions. That's great. Well, Kirk Conrad, thank you so much for being our guest today and kind of breaking it down and pun intended to the elemental level. <laughs> of how hydrogen works and, uh, and you're having, so you, you overall, I guess my last question would be, you feel it's a success and your county commissioners and everybody is happy with it? Absolutely. My one county commissioner, every time I go anywhere, he'll, he'll say I'm the smartest man in Star County. So either I got him buffaloed or I must know something. So our local people are actually pretty proud of what we've accomplished.
Yeah, that's great. I encourage people to go to Kurt's uh, LinkedIn page. He's got some cool videos too and information about the work they're doing there. Thank you so much again, Kurt, and best wishes as you you. continue to be a pioneer in, in alternative fuels for our industry. Thank you. Hi, I'm Alea Carey, a communications consultant who loves working with public transit agencies. How well do you know your market? Most people who work in a transit organization think they know their market pretty well. After all, our product deeply engages with the people and places of our region. And we live and work in our market and usually use regional transportation systems. That gives us an intimate knowledge much deeper than many retailers or other marketers. But we can't get complacent about our market knowledge. And to that end, it's important to conduct periodic market assessments to confirm and expand on our understandings. A market assessment is a profile of your service area. You'll be looking at population and demographics to make note of recent shifts. You'll also want to get a sense of the income levels in your marketplace, as well as the mobility choices your potential customers are making. Beyond looking at the people in your marketplace, it's a good idea to get up-to-date knowledge on the major employers in your region, as well as the other transportation services. Consider conducting a market assessment every two to five years. Armed with this information, you will have a stronger understanding of the needs of your customer base. You can use your assessment to surface marketing opportunities and forecast the demands on your system. If you'd like to talk more about making periodic market assessments or anything else related to communications and public transit, look me up on LinkedIn. My first name is spelled E-L-E-A, last name C-A-R-E-Y. Thanks for sticking with us today on the podcast. We're excited to go into our leadership development portion of the program now. And I'm very happy to have with us my new friend, Sherry Burgess, who is Leadership Development Training Specialist at the Utah Transit Authority. Sherry, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Paul. I'm so excited to be here with you. Great. Well, so today we're going to talk about a topic which I don't think we've ever covered before in six years of the podcast, uh, and that is emotional intelligence. That's really been a hot topic, hasn't it? I mean, there's lots of books about it and all, but you there at UTA have decided it's so important for leadership development that you you personally have developed a whole course about it, right? I have. It's, you know, and you're right. It actually is a very exciting, it's very fascinating um, topic, actually. And I've done a ton of research and done a reading on this subject as I've been creating this program for UTA and for our employees there. And I think you're right, you know, in today's climate or, you know, in particular, the workforce that we're experiencing at this moment and this sort of societal pressures and societal, you know, views and that, I, I think that more than ever, emotional intelligence is, is a just a critical, critical skill to any leader or to anyone, you know, who is in a is in a space where they're interacting with other people. So for our listeners, I think uh, everyone who's been listening now gets that we are every other week on News and Views, we're focusing on some component of leadership development. Why not actually just dive right down into some of the most key elements of leadership development and clearly Self-awareness, emotional intelligence is critical to this if you want to move up in any organization. Sherry, define for us what is emotional intelligence. Well, essentially, emotional intelligence is, is really about our ability to understand and also manage our own emotions and also the emotions of others. You know, how those emotions just truly fundamentally influence our daily lives and the interactions that we're having on a daily basis. And so, you know, you're, you're spot on, Paul, when you talk about self-awareness, self-awareness is, is one of the key uh, components of, of emotional intelligence. So if you think about it this way, there are actually a couple of different competencies, which, which I refer to as 
there's a personal competency side and a, and a, a, a relationship, you know, or a social competency side, I should say. And within those, two, those competencies, there, therein lies this, these specific EQ skills or emotional intelligence skills. And so specifically, we're talking about you know, on the personal competency side, as you say, um, self-awareness and then also self-management. And then we move over into the social competency side. Then we're talking about social awareness, which is about us and other people. And then also, finally, the fourth skill is, of course, going to be relationship management, which is basically a culmination of all these other skills sort of compounding upon each other. And as we get better and better with each of the different skills, then our relationship management is going to become much more successful and effective in every way. I wrote a book right uh, after I left being CEO of the MTA because I had all these you know, lessons I felt like I had learned and I'd written them down and started writing articles about it. And before I know it, I had like 10 of them. And I was like, shoot, I could turn this into a book. So I did. That was my first <laughs> book, not? Full Throttle. And then I invited nine other of my friends who were CEOs to share stories from their careers as well. And in there, I talk about uh, and have talked about this to a lot of people. As a matter of fact, just this week, I was talking to another CEO about it. Um, the, the concept that so often um, people get promoted based on their technical skills. So if you're a wrench turner, and you're really good at turning wrenches in the shop, you get made the supervisor of the wrench turners. But you oftentimes don't receive the appropriate training how to move from management of things to leadership of people. And EQ, emotional intelligence, is, would you say, a critical component of that and being able to lead an organization? I mean, spot on. You know, you, it's, you're exactly right. And we do manage things but we lead people. And I'm so happy to hear, you know, when you actually brought that up. And it's something that we, I actually share with all of my students about there's a, there's this, there's a stark difference between management and leadership. Do we need management? Absolutely. We've got to get the day-to-day done. We've got to have decisions making, we've got to have those things going on. We can teach people to turn those wrenches, as you say, right? You can teach people the technical skills, but it's, what is much harder to do is to teach people to love people and to care about, you know, to really ask themselves, you know, what is important to you and be curious and ask and, and actually be aware of what other people's ner- their needs and their concerns are and actually being sincere and authentic in our desire to understand what those needs and concerns are so that we can then respond appropriately. And that's going to be, that is all rooted in emotional intelligence. You know, it's going to require empathy. It's going to require that authenticity. This is all about choices that we're making with the emotions that we're aware of, the accurate emotions that we're aware of, you know, we can definitely strengthen our, our EQ skills and that takes intention that those are actually choices, which I think, you know, we'll probably talk about this maybe a little bit later, but it really is the good news of emotional intelligence is that it really is a choice. And I love being in charge of my own choices. That's great. Yeah. Cause a lot of times when you talk about emotions, you feel like it's something that you can't control. Oh, absolutely. I think that there, I think that that is, uh, um, I've heard that absolutely. From a lot of people, a lot of different um, students that I've taught, you know, the last few years, and they feel like that they can't control it. And, you know, because a lot of times the first day of class, I'll say, why are you here? Why are you taking this class? Why are you interested in the subject? Well, my wife said I need to come (laughs) or, you know, I have a hard time controlling my temper. And and the first thing I want to do is teach about this this self-management piece is that it's about self-management. It is not about self-control. And we spend quality time talking about the difference between managing and controlling so similar to managing and leading they are very different whether they have some overlap but it is true that we are not in the emotional intelligence isn't it's 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 goal ultimate goal is not to teach us how to control our emotions 
it is the goal is to teach us how to manage our emotions effectively in a positive way. I think uh, that that uh, I have like six thoughts I want to communicate right now. I don't know which one to start at. Uh, let's just go to a question for you. Uh, maybe you can help uh, re- resolve some of the things I have in my mind by responding to this question. How can improving your EQ or and why is it called? Why is EQ called emotional intelligence? There's no Q in there. Why, why is that? Why is that well, the, uh, the uh, it's. I asked the same question when, in the very beginning when I was when I was researching the subject, and it it comes from if you think of um, intelligence quotients quotient right. excuse me the IQ yes. it's yes. emotional quotient okay but but I've heard EQ IQ IE I'm not yes. IQ but IE EQ and emotional intelligence are all interchangeable. Okay. So how can improving EQ skills help leaders to be more effective in their work, especially in their relationships, both internally and externally? Yeah, I th- you know, we, we did touch on that earlier. And this is about the interpersonal relationships, these, the communication, um, things like building relationships of trust, creating psychological safety. You know, um, am I creating an environment where people feel heard? Do they, where they feel as if I truly do care about what they care about, um, that I'm concerned about what they're concerned about? Do they feel like my door is open or do they feel safe enough to express something that an opinion that's in opposition to my own? And a lot of that is going to include things like empathy, you know, emotional validation. Um, so, so often people, you know, even ourselves, you know, we're, we're not, we're not immune to this. So we all require emotional validation in order yes. to, be, to feel heard, to be heard, yes. to feel as if we're valued. And, you know, I think that as leaders, we can help leaders develop them, their emotional intelligence skills to the point where they understand that concept then you know, they're going to be much more successful as leaders, not necessarily managers of right. things, but leaders of people. That's beautiful, Sherry. I think, um, you know, I've heard this statistic that um, 70% of job satisfaction has to do with your relationship with your boss at work. And right now, I think that so many people are yearning for connection, especially coming out of the COVID pandemic, when a lot of our connections that we relied on for our emotional health were cut off because we were required to be locked down. Uh, and so bosses, supervisors, managers, leaders, we especially need to make sure that we're taking care uh, to connect with them in a way where they feel all those things you just said, uh, that they feel heard and listened to. And you know, inside, I believe, inside every human heart, our, the number one need we have is the need for significance. And if, if that significance is bestowed upon us either through our work through our self-actualization on Maslow's hierarchy, but it's also for many of us who have the love language of words of affirmation um, and or things like that. We need that. I I can tell you, Sherry. I remember in my twenties when in my very first job as transportation coordinator for a county government here in Maryland called Queen Anne's County. I was twenty some years old. Had my son with me, who maybe was three at the time. We're walking through the county fair, uh, and the county administrator, the big boss, my boss's boss's boss, you know. Sees right. me walking with my son, Joseph, and stops. He kneeled down and started talking to my son. And, uh, you know, how you doing? Blah, blah. You know, and he, he reaches in his pocket, pulls out a quarter and gives it to him and said, you know, you should go over there and get yourself a hamburger or whatever. And uh, that, look, it's 30 years later. And I still remember that. Or 25 years later, whatever. I still remember that. He's, he connected with me in an empathetic way with my child. This is not a professional situation. We were at the fair. I mean, you know, we still kind of, you know, wear our hats of what our jobs are. But in that moment, 
he connected me with, in, with me in a way that made me want to um, please him, serve him, make him successful, focus on my job even more. Uh, it just, it motivated me. Is that what absolutely. being a leader with good EQ does? I think absolutely. That's that's a beautiful, you know, an, um, example of where that can be seen. And I think what you're talking about, you know, you even mentioned the word empathy, and that's a huge um, module or component of this training that we offer. It, we do an entire uh, section on empathy and what is what is empathy and what's the difference between empathy and sympathy and how empathy actually does drive connection between people. And what we're actually doing is. You know, we can be empathetic to someone without having it had experienced the exact same experience they had, because that's never going to happen. We we all have different lives, different relationships that inform, you know, our our experiences and how we view the world and how we view ourselves. But what we can do is we can dig deep and find a place within ourselves that knows what it feels like to be tired or what it feels like to be um to be lonely or to be having financial difficulty, or to have been just suffered loss. I mean, and all of the positive side of those things too. But when we can d- dig deep enough and find within ourselves a- 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 an emotion that connects us with the other person, now we're now we're validating the other person. Now we are building that relationship of trust and we are having that interpersonal communication that people are truly hungry for, I believe. That's I think good. you're right. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it kind of reminds me of uh, a Seinfeld episode, you know, where they would go on dates and you know, the jerk guy who's only wants to talk about himself and what he's doing. I think a lot of times bosses can be that way. We we have messages that we need to communicate, but we don't take time to connect in a real interpersonal way with others and ask how they're doing um, and get their feedback. And I think that one-way communication, there are times for that. What is required? Uh, but I think we need to have both sides of the coin. In your mind, uh, Sherry, what are some of your favorite aspects of EQ in terms of, you know, kind of sustainable behavior or a mindset change? Well, you know, Paul, I think, you know, I, I mentioned it briefly earlier that one of my favorite things about EQ is knowing that it is a learned skill is something that we can absolutely strengthen. We can work on it just like a muscle. It's not fixed as if, you know, similar to our personality or our IQ, right? The, uh, EQ is something completely different. One does not inform the other. And we can absolutely strengthen those skills. So that's that's part of what I excites me about emotional intelligence is that I get to decide uh, what strategies I want to use personally to improve my my skills. And the other side of that too, you know, and I, I think I mentioned this earlier as well, is it is an intentional act. It is um, part of that authenticity that I'm trying to portray. Or you know, it all begins with just that sincere desire. And at the end of the day, it is a choice. And I absolutely love that. I I don't feel like um, that there is any better news than this is our choice. Yeah, people love to know that they have a choice. They are in the driver's seat. You know, so that's good. That's, mm-hmm. uh, I, I guess it it, it uh, it's bringing out it's this this whole conversation is bringing out a lot of thoughts and feelings. Uh, having worked in for thirty five years, I've been in management. I started my very first job out of college in management, and. Um, you know, I have an admonition for people who have been promoted up into jobs, and that is, it's your job to care about your employees. It's your job to care about your employees. It's not just your job to have the wrenches turn, because who is turning those wrenches? It's people. And the way that you can, you know, unless you're overseeing a robot factory, uh, if you're while people are still involved in this, you have to care about your people. What advice would you have for those interested in increasing their EQ competencies? You know, there are a lot of strategies out there. There are several, several tools. I would say don't stop being curious. 
you know, reading. There are lots of good books out there. There are lots of good authors out, authors out there that have done just years and years of research on this. And so I would say educate yourself. You know, um, that's part of it is just taking the, you know, that accountability piece and just learning, being self-taught or self-learners and being interested in the education of that. There are several other things. So I would mention, um, you know, feedback is really important. Ask someone how you're showing up to them. Ask someone how their, how your behavior is, has impacted them. You know, so, and another thing we do for our students is we actually in the class, they're required to get an EQ mentor. It can be inside or outside the organization, but a mentor is wonderful. They can give us resources. They can give us, you know, real life examples of when EQ has, has helped them in their lives. They can also help us to check our blind spots, you know, and help us to just sort of offer an objective um, insight, you know, into how they are receiving us. Um, the other things we can do is we can journal, you know, if we, if we're, some people are journalists, some people are not, but if we journal and we do that for a few weeks and we really talk about the, the emotional part of our day, we can look back after a few weeks and begin to see patterns of behavior and patterns of re, uh, reaction versus responses. You know, we need to get better at, at responding versus reacting. And, you know, I'll, uh, hopefully I, I can talk about that a little bit too. And, you know, this idea of playing the pause and giving time and space between stimulus and response. And I love, um, there's a, there's a beautiful quote by Viktor Frankl I can share with you if you'd like, but you know, the things that we can do are active listening, really paying attention, reading between the lines, looking at body language and just understanding where the other person is coming from and really be honestly, sincerely, cons- um, desirous to know how they are feeling, how they are doing, what are they concerned with? What are they trying to accomplish and processing that self-awareness? You know, self-awareness um, statistically is the lowest scoring skill, self-awareness and social awareness. The awareness is the awareness piece is in the whole EQ spectrum. Um, so it's interesting, you know, social awareness comes in at, I think something like less than 36% of us are socially aware in terms of being able to accurately identify emotions as they happen in the moment wow. and emotions as they happen across time. So it's a really low number. That is a low so, number. Right. So practicing that self-awareness, you know, practicing the empathy, being positive. And just really, really taking accountability and taking responsibility for our own EQ growth. I think that's the key. That's great. Sherry, thank you so much for, I know this is a 13-hour course you teach and you boiled it down to under 20 (laughs) minutes here for us. Uh, If people wanted to contact you, if they're interested in more information, um, can we put your website or whatever or or your uh, email address in our links? You can put my email address. You can put my LinkedIn link if you'd like yeah either, either one would be great awesome. i'd love to hear from, from some folks who want to learn more about it absolutely now, i think it's important for our industry we are in the people business um you know we may think we're in the transportation business but you know we just had stephen covey on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and of course his father wrote seven habits of highly effective people and one of my favorite ones is begin with the end in mind well what is the end of what we're doing it's helping people and we are helping people through other people through our employees through our operators, through our dispatchers, through our reservations, through our schedulers, through our road supervisors, through our safety and maintenance personnel. And as managers and leaders, we need to be making sure that we are connected with them in a real way. That number really worries me. 37, only 36 to 37% (laughs) of people are aware, but it's the truth. So many people are caught up in their own head, aren't they? Uh, Their own thoughts, their own thinking, and they're not really thinking about what the other person is saying. When they're talking, they're just thinking about what they're going to say next. Exactly. That's part of that active listening piece, you know, to really be not be formulating your response before the person is even finished speaking, you know, and, you know, and I talk about playing the pause, 
not only playing a pause between stimulus and response, but playing a pause can be a gift. It's a gift of time that you can either give yourself. So you're breathing, you're doing whatever strategy you're trying to employ so that you have, you know, greater management over your, you know, your emotional, you know, you don't have experience in an emotional hijacking per se. Um, but also giving the gift of time to someone else when they are expressing something to you, they may be in the middle of processing their emotions and just now realizing for the first time um, what that emotion means to them and where that's coming from. And for the first time in their life, having understanding that emotion or recognizing it with accuracy, it's more than just saying I'm mad. It may be, you know, instead of saying something like, you know, I'm, I'm mad at my brother because he doesn't help me take care of our aging mother, right? Maybe it's more accurate to say, if you know your brother's Jim and you say, hey, Jim, you know, whenever you don't help me with mom, I, I'm starting to feel resentment towards you. And I don't want to feel like that because you're, my relationship with you is really important to me. Can you help me understand why you're not helping out with mom, right? So if you, you use those accurate emotions, whether instead of mad, you're saying, I feel, I'm feeling some resentment. And by the way, I'm not, I am this thing. I'm feeling this thing because we don't, that's another thing with emotional intelligence I think is really important. Is that we don't we don't use it as a tool to label ourselves. We're using it as a tool to label our emotions, which which primarily oh, are powerful. you know yeah they're primarily you know they're they're temporary. Um, they could last a few minutes or they could last a few months or years. I mean I, right. you know it just depends on the situation, but they are in fact temporary, just this sort of snapshot in time. So we want to label the emotion with accuracy. We are not going to say we are this thing, but we are feeling this thing. It's a very powerful um, connection that's made in our minds when we when we begin to understand. I feel like we've just scratched the surface, but this has been enough to expose people to the concept. And I think a lot of people, uh, this is very important for leadership, uh, is this concept of emotional intelligence, EQ. Thank you so much for uh, at least exposing us to the concept, Sherry, and best wishes as you continue to provide this training to the folks at the Utah Transit Authority. Absolutely. Paul, thank you so much for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. It's so good to be here. Thank you for listening to this special triple episode of Transit Unplugged News and Views with our special guests, David Leiniger, Kurt Conrad, and Sherry Burgess. And coming up next week on Transit Unplugged In-Depth, Paul's chatting with Kendra McGady, head of Pelavan Transit in Oklahoma. Now, don't forget to visit transitunplugged.com to sign up for the newsletter so you're always in the loop with whatever's going on with the show. But in the meantime, if you have a question, comment, or want to be a guest on the show, feel free to email us at info at transitunplugged.com. So until next week, ride safe and ride happy. hope you're enjoying this episode of Transit Unplugged, the podcast. How would you like to see behind-the-scenes footage of the agencies that Paul visits? Then be sure to check out the new Transit Unplugged TV on YouTube, where transit evangelist Paul Comfort dives into the culture, the food, and the transit of major cities around the world. You'll see the operations control centers, how maintenance shops work, and the latest innovations taking place at agencies around the globe as we work together to improve the lives of our transit riders and our communities. Be sure to subscribe to Transit Unplugged TV on YouTube or at transitunplugged.com.